This is Alan, and welcome to Matinees on Main Street. This is a podcast about the history of the movies, from the beginning. We're now at the end of the 19th century and the beginning of the 20th century, so I'm stopping just a bit to take a look at the cinematic world of 1900. Last time, I talked about the people who had started the industry, as well as those we will come across in the future. I also talked about their place in the world around this time. Now I'd like to look at some places around the world that have already been kissed by the appearance of films. But before I do, there are a few thoughts about where the ideas of movies were at this time with the public. It's a thought that probably should have been brought up last time, but it seems to fit better into this episode. The reason is that the movies were not yet in the place where we would eventually want them to be. The place I'm referring to is as a major entertainment force in its own right. Part of that reason is that the public simply didn't yet know what to expect from the movies. So how could we know what we wanted it to be? For the most part, We let the industry decide what it wanted the movies to do, and we either accepted or rejected that decision. This problem shows up a lot more when we take a look at world cinema than it does when we are considering American cinema. This podcast has taken 44 episodes to get to this point, and it's at this point where the idea of moving images seemed to have developed an identity crisis. This problem shows up a lot in early movie history because the history is not only a story about inventing a machine, it's also a story about inventing a process and an industry, as well as inventing a reason for the movies to exist in the first place. In a way, cinema history seems to have a problem with this conflict of direction. Cinema's story grows from a number of directions, and it takes some time for these independent concepts to pull themselves into a unified idea known as the movies. This clutter of separate concepts seems to confuse some historians, not only because all the various stories tend to bog down the greater narrative, but because the historian would need to pursue a number of varied interests. Because of this, Those who are artistically inclined believe the history of film should be more about the birth of the narrative, while people interested in science and mechanics tend to focus on those areas. It's the same thing with the public at large when it concerns the movie's past. They would rather talk about movie stars than the politics of the movie business or the latest developments of CGI or 3D imagery. In other words, It's a very convoluted story, and we need patience to tell it right. I've hinted at this problem at times, and this confusion does get discussed in newer film history books. If you've been following this podcast, you'll know that the process of making pictures move was not done to tell stories, especially stories that go on for an hour or longer. I don't think that if you told those men who invented the movie machines about the media's future, that they'd be upset by it. 
It's just that it would take a great leap in mechanics, financing, business organization, artistic skill, and even audience interest before we would get there. Besides that, it just wasn't their intent. That gets to another cinema history topic known as attractions. Tom Gunning gets a lot of credit for creating this term and focusing on that idea, but if you look at the beginning of the movies through a lot of primary source material, the attractions angle is pretty easy to see. Everywhere, from the newspaper articles to the first books written about the movies, it's this idea of novelty that makes the movies attractive. So was the idea that you can make a lot of money from this novelty. And if you have your doubts about the idea of people wanting to make money quickly in a bad economy, all you have to do is consider that at the same time that the moving pictures started, a lot of young men took off to camp in Alaska and the Yukon to go panning for gold. A lot more young men than those who bothered to enter the fledgling film industry. They not only starved up there, they shivered and froze, digging or panning for buried treasure. Compared to that, making money from the movies was a pretty sane idea. It's the potential for money that motivated all the investors. The idea of the movie as a novelty or attraction was at the root of its first successes, and as long as the public was willing to watch images move, that was enough. There were other ideas that offered variety to this novelty of moving images, and some of them would succeed. The first was Edison's, or probably Dixon's, the idea of putting vaudeville stars on film. This would work as a bit of a stargazing idea, but it would never be as successful as the concept promised to be. Another idea was the train film, and for a short time that did prove to be successful. The audiences loved to be jolted by the rush of a train coming towards them. But like Mr. Gunning pointed out, it was an attraction, and like novelties, it grew old quickly. What rescued the movies in America was our rush to war, just as it was England's rush to fight in South Africa that gave its film industry a jolt of success. In fact, in many of the countries around the world, it was the need to provide newsreels that helped sustain the fledgling industry in other places. If your culture had no interest in the outside world, or if your country was not caught up in the middle of some political or military conflict, the chances of the movie succeeding in these years was less. Until the movies latched onto the idea of telling convincing stories in whatever country it was being created, that country's movie industry would struggle. In the beginning, it would be the French and then the Americans who would provide the majority of the films to the outside world. And that time is not long in coming in this podcast. But in order for a country's film industry to grow, it needed to tell its stories to its people. And for some of the countries around the world, that would be a long time in coming. But that doesn't mean that they weren't showing other people's films, even for decades before their own stories were told. The world is used to thinking about the movies in terms of the United States, but in 1900, Edison, Mutoscope Biograph, Lubin, and Vitagraph 
could barely supply America with films, let alone any international customers they may have had. And if you factor in Edison's legal war with these three other companies, you can see that most other countries either had to depend upon the French for movies or themselves. To a great degree, that was how the first film industries outside of America and Western Europe got started. You would think that the French would be filling in the holes left by America's cinematic legal war, but its industry was caught in a limbo that existed between the drop in interest of the Lumieres in making movies and the rise of Pathé a few more years into the new century. In America, supplying the states with movies also meant supplying the Canadian provinces. Canada was more land than people, and this number of cities in general were not that big. At the same time, traveling exhibitors were starting to show films in Canada at just about the same time that they were appearing in the American Midwest. Primarily, they were shown in cities like Toronto, Ottawa, and Montreal. But even Victoria and Vancouver saw occasional movies. I even found a listing for a movie show in the Yukon, thanks to all those former Gold Rush 98ers. Canada was in an odd position, as far as the movies went. As it still had legal links to Britain at the time, they received their share of Robert Paul films and Charles Urban exports. The country also tended to be more interested in the Boer War than they were the Spanish-American War. Still, the Holland brothers of Ottawa had ties to Edison, which also tethered the Canadians to the American film industry. Canada's biggest problem was the kind of money needed to make movies, and there may have also been a British sense of indifference concerning the movies. In other words, there was enough interest to watch other people's films, but not enough to start your own industry. Still, the first Canadian films were made by James Freer, an emigre from southern England who became a farmer in Manitoba. When the Lumieres exhibited films in Canada, Freer caught the movie bug. By 1897, he bought an Edison camera and started taking pictures of life on the farm. This was soon followed by images of the Canadian Pacific Railroad, which passed by the area. Over the next few decades, the CPR would be one of the major financial backers of the Canadian movie industry, as it attempted to find ways to use film to promote Canada as well as the railway. The CPR even took Freer's films over to England, where they proved successful enough that a second exhibition tour took place in 1902. South of the American border, the moving picture situation was much different. There seems to have been very little attempt by the Edison Company to promote or sell their product in Latin America, so almost all of that territory first experienced moving images from Lumiere salesmen. And more so than in the U.S. or Canada, the Latin American movie experience at the beginning of the 1900s was more reserved for people who had the money to spend on such entertainment. Each of the major countries in Latin America had some experience with the Lumiere camera in 1896. Still, it made more of an impression in some places than in others. At the same time, some of the cities were of more importance to the Lumieres and their salesmen than were others. 
It's rather ironic that while most of Latin America was now separated from Spain, almost all the countries that were once under Spain's influence had the same issues with this new photographic toy as did Spain itself. Everyone was delighted with the novelty, but little to no effort was made to capitalize on it. While the Lumiere salesmen had shot the local films they used during the various premieres of the cinematograph in Latin America, afterwards interest usually died, or what little interest existed was easily sated with the use of films made in America or France. For example, two Lumiere salesmen, Ferdinand von Bernard and Gabriel Weyer, arrived in Mexico in late July of 1896 would stay until mid-October. Ver, like many Lumiere salesmen, was from the Lyon area, where he attended College of Saint-Alban-du-Rhône. Bernard's background is not known, although it's speculated that he's German. The two men left France at the beginning of July and landed in New York City. There they took a train straight to Mexico City. Once in the capital, their contact, a photographer, introduced them to a Mexican general who introduced them to Mexican President Porfirio Diaz. Diaz granted them permission to film Mexican troops and to organize a showing of their films to a crowd of wealthy Mexicans. It seems to have been the Lumiere strategy to sell their cameras to those who could afford them. For the next month, Bernard and Ver held cinematic soirees for Mexican society while continuing to film various images of Mexico City life. These films were sent back to Lyon for development and later exhibited to the Mexicans. By September, Bernard and Ver were showing films in a building in Mexico City when Edison Company sent a cameraman and a vitascope to Guadalajara for a short time. By October, Ver was sounding out the people of Guadalajara about bringing in a cinematograph for a short time, which he did before returning to Mexico City. By November, things were wrapping up. Bernard had already left, and Ver requested a transfer to a new location. It seems that a movie theater did continue to run in Mexico City, and that by 1906 there were 16 movie theaters in the city, probably inspired by the mad rush for Nickelodeons that was happening that year. Salvador Toscano Barragan started projecting films in Mexico City, as well as following the usual creative ideas for these early film clips by shooting short actualities and news events, as well as local performers and comedic bits. Barragan would continue making local films this way for quite some time. What happened in Mexico City shows what would have happened to New York City or Paris if these cities' film industries hadn't been so keen on expanding their markets. If some kind of distribution system had been set up in Mexico, maybe a small Mexican film industry may have started. But film histories give no impression of these movies leaving the city, so it would take decades for the industry to start up. This is the problem throughout Latin America. The Lumiere Cinematograph appeared in Rio de Janeiro, Buenos Aires, Santiago, 
La Paz, Cologne, Maracaibo, and even Havana over the course of 1896 and into 1897. In most cases, the reception was quite positive, but these machines needed electricity to run their illumination, and power did not reach beyond the major cities at that time. Much of the Latin American economy was a difference between the city and the country, with little of the city's benefits trickling out into the countryside. Even the railroads, which had so benefited Western Europe and America, was spreading much more slowly throughout Latin America, and that would be the case in almost all of Africa as well as Asia. Without the railroads, the benefits of the city were much less likely to reach the small towns and villages. Even in America, there were parts of the South that would not receive electricity until the Great Depression and the Franklin Roosevelt administration. In Europe, the situation was much less cooperative than it was in America. Europe had been the Lumiere's main market, and their camera projectors had had an impact in all of the important cities of Europe. But it was the political situation that determined how the movies developed at that time. We've talked about the situation in England and France, so there isn't much else to tell you. But it's probably interesting to know that while England was the most economically successful and stable of the European countries in the 19th century, they were nowhere near as successful as were the French in developing a movie industry. In fact, it could be argued that on the whole, France was even more successful than America at this time. Much of the success comes from the way that the Edisons saw their market from the way that the Lumieres saw theirs. To the Lumiere brothers, it was an opportunity. To Thomas Edison and his men, it was seen as a nuisance or even a threat. Due to the damage that had been inflicted upon his company by the 1890s economic downturn, it seems to have been only around this time of 1900 that the Edison people awakened to the field of gold that making movies promised. England was different in that its success during the Victorian era made it very complacent when it came to growing new interests. It would be fair to say that England was much more interested in blue-chip growth instead of investing in a number of flash-in-the-pan industries. In 1900, those flash-in-the-pan industries included more than the movies. A decade or so earlier, you could have included the telephone industry in that description. But certainly the automobile did fit, and soon to arrive was the aviation industry. So would radio. Those last two probably wouldn't see much success until after World War I, but any visionary would have seen them coming. Interestingly, it wasn't finance that was growing the cinema in France. It was the French idea of art, or at least the idea that art was important in culture, if not as an entertainment, then as an expression of a people. Of all the world's cultures, it was the French who tweaked the idea of liberty that both the Americans and the British were so fond of talking about by using it to create the idea of individual liberty, or as it would later be thought of, 
as equality. Art helped the French understand this idea of one's individual rights to free expression, as the country, or more probably Paris itself, spent a good part of the last century raging over artistic and literary ideas about romanticism, realism, and now modernism. Each idea came and went, leaving the psychological ideas that would help develop awareness of the liberties of the individual. And in that, the movies were seen as an extension of those ideas. Movies were not about selling excitement or recording an event. They were the perfect blending of artistic and literary ideas. And while 1900 was way too soon to expect a cinematic interpretation of Hugo or Balzac, the hope of using the movies as a way to express joy or sadness or humor certainly delighted the people making the movies in France much more than it did the staid British or the money-loving Americans. It was this passion for the cinema that the Lumieres were attempting to sell. Things were different in Germany and Italy. Until the time of the American Civil War, both countries were politically fragmented, not just in a social sense, but politically and legally. From its beginnings, Germany had been a fragmented series of big and little principalities, such as Hesse, Bavaria, Prussia, Pomerania, Saxony, the Palatinate, and dozens of smaller ones. But by the 19th century, militaristic Prussia was uniting the country through a series of marriages and annexations before France forced a belligerent Prussia into the Franco-Prussian War in 1870. The war was short, and by its end, Germany was unified. Italy did the same thing, only more painfully. Through the 1860s and into the 1870s, a civil war was fought for a unification that placed the King of Sardinia on Italy's throne. Both countries experienced a burgeoning sense of nationalism, but as far as the movies went, they were seen as the novelties they were, rather than what they could be. Quite a while back, I talked about the work of the Skladnowski brothers, especially Max. So now, I'll briefly mention Oscar Mester. Mester was the son of what we would consider an optometrist. It's not clear if his father had schooling in the profession, but with the beginning of this new century, eye doctors became the latest profession whose practitioners developed an interest in the making of moving images. Unlike the Lumieres, who started as manufacturers of camera accessories, Mester's occupation was similar to that of Leon Gaumont and George Klein. As doctors of the eye spent their time manufacturing eyeglasses and lenses, a few of them let their shops become retail outlets for cameras, camera equipment, telescopes, magnifying glasses, and later moving picture equipment. Once Mester got his hands on a moving picture camera, he developed a sideline as a manufacturer of moving picture cameras. Like Robert Paul, these cameras were sold across Europe, and Mester would soon sell over 60 of them. 
In a way, Mester is considered the father of German cinema, but as with the others, his interests were more about machines than art. As for Italy, its involvement in the movies was slow, and its impact would not be felt until the second decade of the new century. But showings of the cinematograph did appear in a number of cities at this time, including Rome, Naples, Salerno, Bologna, Turin, and Milan, where Italy's first film center would start. In Rome, Filatillo Albertini devised an early movie camera and projector, possibly before the Lumieres, but his government didn't issue the patent until after the Lumieres camera projector was on the market. Regardless of the date, Albertini was another man influenced by the failure of Edison to patent a movie projector in Europe. Like many of these cities and countries, Austria and Vienna in particular would import films made in France, England, or America and occasionally show them. It wouldn't be until the middle of the first decade of the 20th century that Austria would start making films. Poland, the home of actress Pola Negri, would come to the movies late. The experience of Russia, the home of actress Ala Nazimova, happened very early. In a past podcast, I talked about how the Lumiere cinematograph was used to record the coronation of Nicholas II. And while it was rather limited, this experience did give Russia both a front-row seat to the beginning of the movies and gave the country some latitude in allowing the development of the cinema. In Russia, most of what was shown were newsreels. It wouldn't be until the first story films became popular that Russia would see a few homegrown films. Northern Europe was more reactive to the cinematic energy of France and England than were the other countries. It wasn't long after the Lumieres were showing their films in Europe that interest in the movie started in the Netherlands and Denmark. Young men with movie cameras started to make experimental films and even show them. But in the Netherlands, the movies were more about showing films than they were about making them. In Denmark, photographer Peter Elfelt took up cinematography after a possible meeting with someone who was promoting the Lumiere cinematograph at the time, possibly someone like Felicien Trevet, who would have directed Elfelt to Jules Carpentier. It was through Carpentier that Elfelt obtained the mechanical design for a movie camera projector and started making films on the side. The following year, he made Denmark's first film clip, Traveling with Greenland Dogs. He would continue to make newsreels over the next several years and made Scandinavia's first story film about a woman who was executed for killing her children. He never explained why he made such a grim film, and he may never have shown it. Lumiere cameramen filmed locations and showed films through the Mideast, primarily along the Mediterranean Sea or near it. This includes Beirut, Jerusalem, and Alexandria. The one place where cinema immediately took root was in Egypt, where a few shorts were filmed and later shown locally. Again, 
It was the French, American, and British films that were shown, and enough permanent locations developed that these businesses started supporting the making of local films. Outside the interconnected world where Western European and English languages were constantly spoken, the country most likely to have had experience with the cinema at this time was India, due to its status as a British colony. While it could be assumed that England would have provided a reliable trickle of very early films for the Indian market, like everywhere else, it was the French who jump-started the birth of what would become the biggest and greatest film industry outside of the Western world. Back in episode 23, I talked about Marius Sestier and his struggle showing films in Mumbai. It was blistering hot that summer, and he managed to exhibit films at a showing at the Watson Hotel on July 7th of 1896. In his audience was the photographer Savidada, who would be so inspired by Sevier's show that he purchased a camera that was shipped from England. Sestier also held exhibitions in Calcutta and Chennai before leaving for Australia. The following year, Professor Stevenson arrived with a large collection of films that he exhibited in Mumbai at the Star Theatre. Interestingly, despite the English-sounding name, Professor Stevenson may have been working in France at the time. But this Indian story is not clear. Apparently, he either helped put on a presentation of a multimedia show called The Flower of Persia, or the show may have simply been a collection of his films. Regardless, professional Indian photographer Hiralal Sen used Stevenson's movie camera to record part of the show. It seems that the Flower of Persia film was shown at some point and it gets credit as being the first movie made in India. Hiralal Sen was from Bangladesh and would eventually make at least 40 films in Kolkata, most of these films were short recordings of performances, kind of a newsreel of theater highlights. He would also make a film called Alibaba and the Forty Thieves, although it sounds as if it was never shown to the public, and the film is most undoubtedly gone. Too bad. Hiralal Sen's collection of performance highlights seems like a good start for Indian cinema, and it's good to see that somebody at this point was willing to use the camera for something more than recording newsreels. Still, it's a long way to Bollywood. Maybe someday this podcast will find the time to stop and pay it another visit. The growth of a cinema culture in China seemed possible in the 1890s, but in 1900, with the rise of the Boxer Rebellion, they had a start of a good 60 years of political chaos. Through much of the 1800s, Great Britain had been attempting to turn China into its latest version of India. But their relationship went sour at this time, and later attempts by the Japanese to colonize China and then the later communist takeover delayed the building of a Chinese film industry for decades. But in 1896, there had been an attempt to introduce the moving picture in Shanghai, and films seemed to have been exhibited there, at least in the late 1890s. 
While documentation is almost negligible, there appears to have been a screening at the Zhu Gardens on August 11, 1896. This was in Nanjing, a city that functioned both as a governmental and administrative center, as well as a cultural capital. It was about 200 miles west of Shanghai. The gardens were a feature of the city's presidential palace. According to Chinese film historian Le Quan Pang, there seems to have been exhibitions of movie clips in Hong Kong at Britain's Old Victoria Hotel. Also, James Recalton, who seems to have been Frank McGuire's replacement as the Asian representative of the Edison Company, showed films in Shanghai in 1897. As it was in the West, these early films were shown in a variety of public places, including opera houses, theaters, public gardens, and even palaces. Similar to the showings in Latin America, these Chinese sites were primarily upscale attractions meant for the wealthy, and this restricted Chinese workers from seeing moving images. As with almost every other place that showed films, it was around 1906 when the first movie houses appeared in China, most of them started by Western investors. Most of these countries greeted the movies with a bit of hesitancy. While they were perfectly willing to welcome some entertainment from this novelty, the idea of using it for something other than a moment's distraction seemed to discourage them from pursuing it any farther. Usually, just a few people were charmed enough by the process to continue an interest in it. Hopefully, these people would take it far enough to start making their own movies. In these last two places along the western edge of the Pacific, a much greater interest in film developed. While these two countries were very different, in ways they were both the same. Both the Japanese and the Australian New Zealand cultures were both very new, having been developed in the 1800s. Australia was started by the British as a penal colony and eventually became a home to these former Brits, and Japan consciously raised itself out of a feudal society into the modern world. Unlike China or Russia or even South America, their cultures were not so entrenched that they couldn't make room for a novelty such as the flickering images of a moving picture machine. Unlike almost any other country, it was the appearance of an Edison machine that began Japanese cinema. I just talked about Japan's film start a few episodes ago, and it goes into a fair amount of detail. Still, it's important to remember that Japan's goal at the time was to modernize its medieval ways. Unlike some cultures, Japan believed it had to modernize in order to understand the new modern world that was growing up around it. Part of that belief also saw the moving pictures as a helpful tool in explaining modern culture as well as presenting it. While in 1900 the first attempts were still being made to understand that process, by 1903 a movie theater of sorts was built in a neighborhood of Tokyo. In 1904, the Russo-Japanese War started and was filmed by Japanese cameramen. 
The war not only bolstered Japanese patriotism and nationalism, the war footage newsreels suddenly made Japanese cinema an attractive idea. In a few years, the same thing would happen in Italy. It might seem that Australia and New Zealand might have been left out of the loop at this time, but that was not the case, at least not for Australia. This was where Marius Sevier traveled when the heat of India got too much for him. His appearance in Sydney created quite a cultural stir, while at the same time two other cameramen were exhibiting films in town. Still, it was the Lumiere films that captured their hearts, and during his last night in Sydney, he showed the crowd a film he had shot locally. Afterwards, he left for Melbourne, where he filmed the Melbourne Cup horse race, and copies of these films were sent back to Sydney for the locals to see. At the same time, a kinetoscope showed up in Auckland, New Zealand. It was a machine imported by Robert Whitehouse. Whitehouse also commissioned W.H. Bartlett to film the opening of the Auckland Industrial and Mining Exposition in 1897. This news clip showed a marching band, a governor arriving, and a crowd entering the main building of the exposition. This movie is the first authentic Kiwi movie. Australia also had its newsreels at this time, but it was the occasional chutzpah of Australia's infant film industry that is the biggest surprise during this period. In 1900, a group associated with the Salvation Army created a major glass slide multimedia event called the Soldiers of the Cross. Over 200 glass slides were combined with movie shorts and backed by an orchestra presenting a life of Jesus Christ. This was all organized by Herbert Booth, the son of the Salvation Army's founder, William Booth. Herbert had traveled to Canada and later Australia in the name of the Salvation Army, and it was while he lived down under that he became involved with the Salvation Army's theatrical division and organized this massive spectacle. And then in 1906, out of seemingly nowhere, with Australia still without a major film company, a small group of people made the first major feature film in the world from scratch. It was the mythic story of the Kelly Gang, directed by Charles Tate and filmed around Melbourne. At a time when the rest of the world was just adjusting to the idea of paying small change to see a small number of five and ten minute movies, Tate had created a movie that was an hour long and it proved to be a big hit in Australia. This was the first step that the Antipodes took on its way to Peter Jackson's Lord of the Rings trilogy. I hope I can find enough information to talk about the Kelly Gang movie when the time comes. We'll see. So in the end, that's my exhausting and exhaustive look at some of the future players in the world's cinema at the beginning of 1900s. In the next few episodes, we'll go back to the events of the day, as we look at first a major boxing match, and then the news events from that time, and the newsreel films that were made from them. 
Thank you very much for listening, and I hope you return for the next episode. 